Welcome to the Panoramic Outdoors Podcast, connecting you to all things outdoors. Hey, we're going to welcome folks back to 159 here on the episode today. We got Barry Good from Dirty Lake Outfitters. But before we get to Barry and some of his knowledge around waterfowl outfitting, uh, Sheldon, you're you're tuning in from, well, where are you tuning in from, Sheldon? I'm in Headingley, Manitoba right now. The big that's, city. That's home base. City. That's home base for you lately, eh? It has been, yeah. It's been, it's getting pretty boring. So I'm glad we get to do these uh, podcasts at night. Are, are you uh, still maintaining your two bed rotation? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I'm actually pretty upset because you told me I'm no good at intros. So, I'm <laughs> yeah, he's, he's rocking. You can't see it right now, but he's rocking back and forth. Uh, you gotta, I gotta rattle him up a little before we uh we get rolling here, just so he's a little on edge. Um, exactly. But but you you had some some big times in the woods there. Uh, Chase and I were out bird hunting with our buddy Tyler and in, in the Netley Marsh, which is kind of connected to the, the Winnipeg river system in some ways, um, just North of Winnipeg, a uh, huge waterfowl kind of like, um, factory in, in a lot of ways, the Netley Marsh it's, they've been doing some restoration there. Um, and we managed to sneak out a couple, well, one good hunt, got got on the birds and made it worth it but uh we were facetiming you in the middle of the hunt because uh you guys had some big news there you you want to slide us whatever info you can there Sheldon yeah for sure I um got invited to go to do an elk hunt with Chance um he phoned me up last minute kind of thing and just you know was like I'm you know hunting by myself I've got a couple tree stands for whitetail and I have a whitetail tag obviously so I was like yeah sure I'll go up uh, so we went to the Ashran area, and yeah, the one afternoon he, uh, it's. I, I think I'm gonna have to get him on the podcast to tell the story. To be honest, so I don't want to yeah, get it, right into. It was a wild story. Yeah, I don't want to get right into it, but he ended up harvesting a, a nice five by five bull, um, in the middle of nowhere. Like we just to give you a kind of the Cole's notes is that uh, the hunt started at like one in the afternoon, like. One afternoon, I think he shot it at six, and by the time we got it out, it was just after midnight. So uh, it was a long day, but yeah, we uh, it was exciting. It's awesome to see somebody harvest an animal with with a bow with your archery equipment. Like it's a, it's amazing. It's cool. I I was I was alongside him, took some pictures and and some video, and I got some some pretty cool content out of it, which was my goal. And uh, yeah, it was just an amazing time. Uh, yeah. Uh, but, and then I, when I, so I left there and then I went hunting on Saturday, uh, in Nipah for Whitetail. And I just got a quick story to tell you cause it's like a burner. Yeah, so it's a Lockport story. I bet you. Well, no, not really. It's pretty short. Okay. Um, it's not going to have to be its own podcast episode. Uh, but anyways, I go out Saturday. I didn't get out till late. So I ended up just like staying out of my tree stands and just kind of like sitting in the bush and watching the the area that I wanted to be archery hunting. And I seen mm-hmm. 37, 37 deer that night. So the next night I go to go out and um, 
or sorry, that night I was watching, I seen a nice buck come right by my stand. So I was like, right on. So the next night I go out, I seen 17 deer, uh, a nice five by five was about a hundred yards out. He would have got an arrow if he would have came any closer. Um, he was a decent deer, but I was waiting for this big, tall five by five, not super wide, but like very tall. Um, dad's got him on camera a few times. So anyway, sitting there waiting, waiting, waiting. And uh, most of the deer come out and it's like, I checked my iHunter app. It's 830. Uh, hunt time quit stops at 833. So I'm like, I got three more minutes for this guy to come out, scan the field, scan the bush, like uh, around the bush, blah, blah, blah. Go climb out of my tree stand, go halfway down, take a look out in the field. There's nothing there. Come down to the bottom of the tree stand, put all my stuff, get all my stuff together, start sneaking out to like the field's edge. And he's standing there like 30 yards in front of me. Broadside. No. Yeah. Did you, and you I was have, like, huh? Did you have your release on or no? I had my release on, but I didn't have an arrow knocked because yeah. I kind of put everything away to, to walk. Yeah. And and I mean it was dark. I I could silhouette him very well. I knew he was a nice tall buck. I didn't know exactly which one he was, but you know, he's standing there, he's looking at me, I have perfect wind, I'm looking at him. And for five minutes I just sat there and watched him and he was watching me. And then all of a sudden he started feeding again. And he went like there's a little hill in the field, so he went kind of on top of this hill. And I got my binoculars out and got on my stomach so I could silhouette him in the sky. And uh, yeah, seeing seeing it was that big tall buck, and uh, yeah, just heartbreak, man. But hopefully, I mean, I didn't scare him. Like I like I said, good wind. I snuck out of there nicely, I think, and uh, hopefully, he'll still be coming by next weekend. But you felt that one in your stomach, I'm guessing. Yeah, it's just like man, it's just yeah, it's just one of those things. It's it's archery hunting, right? I guess it's any type of hunting. It just you run out of time and you know they're coming like but just when are they gonna come do you think you're gonna have to move your stand or are you, are you confident no. that he's gonna yeah very confident and in the field that we're in um they're using it kind of as a travel corridor and there's another spot that i'll be putting a ground blind in um which will be i think it'll be dynamite come come later in the later in the year here yeah so you're you're using the uh, eye hunter app there to to check the the sunset is that, is that oh possible? yeah tristan first of all yes that's what i was doing with the hunter app but the i hunter app this week was life-saving in so many different ways and i know like we talk about i hunter all the time we kind of get into some of the specifics of what the app actually does but i'm gonna like talk about the basics very quick because when we went when i went to help my buddy out with the elk hunt yeah. One guy that I know, there's a kind of a two story here, but the one guy that I know has lots of knowledge in the area is Chase. And Chase yeah. has been using that Hunter app forever. So when I was going there, I texted him and I said, Hey, man, like, uh, can you maybe share some stuff with me on iHunter? And it was so easy. Just like go on the iHunter chat. He shared a bunch of waypoints. And, and on those waypoints, it was how he described it with pictures, et cetera. So it was like elk rub here. And there was like, entry point to trail or whatever, right? Like there's all this good information that I got from just his waypoints. The flip side of that, or the second part of that story is I had a friend whose husband got drawn for the first time in Asheron area, whatever it was, 27 or 21, I can't remember, or they're both maybe. So she texts me and she's like, hey, do you have any like 
any info on the Asher area for elk hunting. So I got, I texted him, said, do you have iHunter? He said, yep. I said, send me your, your name or whatever, your profile. So he sent me his his uh, information, and I shared him some of some of the waypoints with him from, like, the, the public area we were hunting there a few years ago, like mm-hmm, northeast mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Um, shared him some of that stuff and just said, you know, I'm not, we're not, like, I'm not going to be around there or blah, 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 but you you know, more than welcome to check those areas out. I have no promises. I haven't been there for years, but um, which I thought was super cool. And he was very, very thankful and, you know, help another guy out or another hunter out is always, always a good thing. And then the last part about the iHunter app is that um, when, when my buddy there was, was chasing the elk, like it was, it was in a half section. That was basically all forest, like bush, slough, willows, etc. But on there you could he had it like he had the whole thing like mapped out on his eye hunter where it can tell a whole story. So like where he seen the elk for the first time, you know, where he shot the elk, where he recovered the elk, where the quad trail was, and like showing you on the phone is so much easier than explaining to me like, oh, there's orange ribbon in the tree over there. And then you go seventy five yards and there's orange ribbon in the tree over there. You know what I yeah. mean? Like it was yeah. so good, man. I I'm never going hunting without the iHunter app ever again. Um, I mean, unless I'm going to like hunt ducks in my dad's backyard or something. But if I'm going on any excursion, iHunter is definitely what I'm going to be using. Yeah. And I can even think of a few examples where you talk about kind of that visual representation and we've used the track function, for example, when we're been chasing a bugle through the bush and you might think you're going one way in the bush, but you come back to camp and you check, or if you you're do, you might be doing it in the live time, you can see often like that elk is like looping back on itself or on the herd. And yeah. you get like this overhead view of what is going on or like the, the direction of the chase. And uh, I've learned some hard lessons that way, but it's, it's definitely helping for my hunting style too. Yeah, for sure. And like the other thing that I really liked about about the iHunter app is like you could draw a track. So like there was three spots where Chance seen this bull. And so at the end of the night, we're having beers, having trophy night. We're looking on iHunter and you can draw a track from one waypoint to the next. And it'll tell you the exact distance, like kind of as a crow flies, which yeah. I never knew before. So I like, so we were like drawing these tracks in of like we're from one point to another. And it's just like, holy you know what I mean? Like, holy shit, that was 200 yards from where we seen them, you know? Yeah, yeah. It was it was cool. Yeah, that app is amazing. Yeah, it goes a long way, eh? Well, that's good. You had some success, and it sounds like you got some stuff to look forward to in the or the archery front for Whitetail there. I know the the Ashern kind of areas eluded us for, for elk for a while, so it was exciting to hear that uh, someone had success out there that we're connected to. Yeah, yeah. It was a, it was a cool, it was a cool experience, and yeah, time I'll never forget. The one thing that I, you know, just to uh, add on another ad read, but I was wearing, uh, we have a partnership with Badlands that we just started, and I was wearing the Caller pants um, while hunting. I haven't got my jacket yet, but it's, I think it's on its way. Um, my first impressions of the pants, though, was like, oh, my God, these fit nicely, and they come with suspenders because I got, like, the dad bought a little, not a little gut, a big gut. So I need the suspenders to be walking around in the push. Uh, but the one thing that I really liked about the pants is like the button and zipper system. They're like pretty heavy duty, which I need clearly. Um, and then the <laughs> other thing is that uh, it's like 
I can't really describe the material if, unless I like went and read it right off the tags. Mm-hmm. But it's like this, uh, it's almost like a Gore-Tex type material. I don't know, it's, it's kind of hard to describe. But the thing that I recognize and notice right away is kneeling in the grass, wet grass and stuff. I, it was water resistant. Like I didn't even get wet. The yeah. only type of like moisture was just from me sweating. Really, like it was. I'm really, really impressed with the pants so far. Yeah, I've got a few good things to say about my gear too that I was testing out there. But maybe I'll I'll save some of those for another thing. I want to give them a little bit more time. We I had them in the marsh with me for the waterfowl hunt because um I have the the um the outdoor set there too or the, like the the more even water resistant set um but i i really want to put them through the paces before i i comment here but so far so good i'll, I'll say that much yeah we can't give them all the raving reviews right off the bat for sure but um i'm very thankful for for badlands badlands canada and their whole team there they're uh, help supporting the podcast and help supporting us to be able to get outside and and be comfortable. And I mean, the biggest thing for me is, is time. And if you can spend the more time you can outdoors or in the woods, on the yeah. lake, whatever it is, the more success you'll have. So yeah. big thanks to them. It's one thing to get outside. It's another thing to, uh, to stay outside. Yeah, that's very true. Well, that's good news. And then on my end too, like I was just, we went on a chicken hunt didn't see much, but Chase found a boatload of chanterelles on our walk. Oh God! Yeah, he was he was off. He didn't even have to go far. I want to say he went on one of his walks, but he he didn't need to. He was just like instantly in the bush. So he's like, "Look at all these chanterelles!" And he's like, yeah. kind of like he was a chicken. He was like kind of bobbing, bobbing in the bush, pecking at these mushrooms. But uh, yeah. So we came home with a bunch of mushrooms, no chickens, landed up making, I made a, a wild rice kind of casserole out of that. And Chase landed up making some sort of smash burger with, with the, the mushrooms there. He posted on this thing, but oh, it looked unreal. yeah, it did look good, but pretty but she, good, pretty good weekend overall. Yeah. I was going to say Chase is the kind of guy, the last time I went hunting with him were elk hunting. I think after an elk and he was like picking mushrooms on his way. Yeah, yeah, you know what I mean. Like he's oh, yeah. just always focusing on the old mushroom trail. Yeah, yeah. Maybe Even we'll see him. In, hunting, I think he got mushrooms. See him in the Mario movie, and maybe next time around. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A little tall for that movie, I think. Um, guess who I was talking to today? Uh, Joe Apple. STB. Like, give me any. Oh, Sean Taylor Band. Sean Taylor Band. I was we were texting each other about. Uh, this upcoming hunting season uh about some tree stands but I'm oh nice you got there. yeah yeah i was in there bugging them too um just to see what's up and stuff like that i poked my head in the shop uh and he was stocking up for fall already i noticed um so he had a an entire shelf there of like the primo elk calls and he was telling me about this aluminum tube that they're coming out with or they have out already that apparently mm-hmm. sounds like a just a megaphone for your bugle Oh, really? So, yeah, so that might be pretty cool to check out. Um, and I was out, and he's got, like, these this set of waiter gloves, these, like, camel gloves, that neoprene camel gloves that come up over your arms. Because I find, I don't know if it's from the commercial fishing side that he gets these or what, but, like, I find when you're doing your decoy work and stuff, especially late season, 
if you have a garbage glove, you are not going to have a good time. So like, I, I just feel like the more you can do around staying dry, especially when you're waterfowling, like you're going to have a better time. They're called, yeah. I'm just looking at them right now here. They're called action. Yeah. Action neoprene gloves. They look like they come up like to your elbow almost and they're they look pretty HD. So I was pretty excited about those. He said he's getting more hunting stuff in, so stay tuned. Um, but if you wanted to check them out and see what they're all about, or just see a good pooch, uh, 506 Mercy Street in Selkirk there. Um, Sean is bringing more stuff in, and he's trying to clear out some of the fishing gear too, so you'll get a good deal there. Oh, nice. Yeah, and then, of course, Sean Taylor Band, check them out, local artist. Um, I was going to ask you, actually, when you're talking about the marsh, did you notice, you probably did notice, the water level. Is it What's the water level like in the marsh right now? It's interesting. The Red River, so like for folks that aren't familiar with the Red, a lot of it is regulated through not just the lock and dams by Lockport here where I live, um, but some of the river is regulated through Lake Winnipeg levels, which are controlled by those dams on the north end of Lake Winnipeg. And obviously the water outflow that we get from the south out of like North Dakota and stuff like that. They've kept the locks closed here in Lockport for quite a while. So the the water on the south south of Lockport is quite high. And then it's it's quite low, like for the rest of the way, heading right. out of Lockport. The interesting part about the marshes we were hunting, like it's quite impacted by the wind. So if there's a heavy north wind, for example, the marsh will be high because uh, it's pushing all that water back from Lake Winnipeg into the river system. But with the south wind, you got to be careful. If the wind shifts on you when you're in the marsh, um, uh, you, you might get stuck because if you go from like a north wind to a south wind, that hole that you got into on step yeah. might might be a situation where you're you're trying to pull your boat across a mud flat uh, by the time the afternoon evening hits. Have you ever got caught like that? We've got, it's been close, I would say. Like, so I hunt with Tyler quite a bit. He's got a winch on his boat with like this anchor he welded up that you can literally stick in the mud and it catches and it you'll winch your way kind of like 40 feet at a time. But it is uh, not, it is not a fun way to exit the marsh. I'll tell you that much. No kidding. And, and the only reason why I ask is because I was talking to a guy from Thompson that's uh, going moose hunting there right away. And the area that he's going in, He's having a tough time getting a boat in because he said the water's so low up there. Um, so I'm just wondering what the marsh is like. And, it's, you know, it's kind of interesting of them having the locks closed. And I, I I don't know much about it, but I wonder how much, like, influence there's behind, like, the agriculture and everything else to keep the water in the river system for, for those interests, right? Yeah. It'd be interesting have... to know. I have no – I've lived here most of my life, and I have no idea why they open and close those locks. Right. They just kind of go open and we say, okay, the water's high. They go close and we say, okay, the water's like damming up now. Well, they're, they're probably, their interest there is probably they don't want all the water to escape the river and then find all like the garbage and stuff in the river in Winnipeg, but all the dildos. <laughs> Did you catch a dildo one time fishing? That was, that was not me. No. Oh, no. I don't know. Maybe that's one of those folklore stories. Yeah. Maybe that was, a, I, that might have been on the internet, I think. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. What's what's the craziest thing you've ever caught in that river? Anything like weird? No, like the weirdest thing I've caught has been in the white shell and it was a boot and it fought like a fish. <laughs> so I thought I was convinced. I was young at the time. I was convinced that I had a fish coming up. That's hilarious. It was a it was a boot. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard of guys yeah. catching sandals and the same thing because they like yeah all the way yeah. Up. They thought it was fish. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. No, this one was definitely fighting like a walleye, and it turned out to be like a size nine rubber boot. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's great. Yeah, it went um, but yeah. Anyways, waterfall. We're gonna get into the waterfall episode here. Um, but your marsh hunt. What'd you guys do? Do you guys get some limits or what? Yeah, got our limits there. Um, it was actually surprising. I mean, Chase Chase did blow two boxes of shells, but it was just a hell of a time in the marsh. Uh, we were laughing. We were kind of uh, joking around. We got uh, we got to see the dog work there. That Sai was helping us. I was eleven years old, so he was uh, a little slower on the old mud flats than he used to be. But uh, it was it was just a pleasure to. We've kind of hunt. We've hunted over that dog his entire life, and it's just a pleasure to be out in the marsh doing what we've done for for eleven years. I don't have as much time as I I used to for it, and so like. I definitely took a a few more deep breaths when I was out there. Appreciated the smells. Uh, noticed the smoke curling out of Chase's shotguns a few times there after he fired oh. off a few triple rounds. It's like nice. not only was that hilarious, but the smoke looks really really cool coming out of your gun right now. Yeah, I was just actually gonna say when you uh, talked about uh, time and how much of a pleasure it was being out there. It must have been pretty cool to be out there with Chase too, because I know both you guys have young families, and getting out hunting might happen a handful of times a year compared to every time you went out hunting in your younger days. So you yeah. must appreciate that a little bit more. Yeah, you know when I got out chicken hunting with him too that same weekend, and mainly because Chase, like a couple weeks leading into this this fall season, was saying, "I'm going out hunting this weekend," and I said, "Okay, I'm gonna try and I time my shit so I can get out with him." Yeah. Um, but yeah, we did remark it like we used to have so much free time. Like we there were times like when we were out of school but not like in a deep career or things like that, or Chase would be back for several weeks from his helicopter job where we would just we'd have a set of binos in in the truck and we would just go cruise. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or like we would go like I think about that time we went to Nipawa too. Like we would just go, we went for a cruise, and uh, found yeah. found a good spot to have a couple beers in a in a on a field. But um, no worries, you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I still like even on my side of things. Like my old man, he's uh, he's working quite a bit right now, doing some harvesting with with a farmer. But um, those days when hey, jump, let's jump in the truck, go for go for a scout, you know, before dark or even first thing in the morning, grab your coffee, jump in the pickup, and go for a drive with them. And, uh, you know, that's always it. There's times you, you don't take for granted, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I know Barry's about to impart some wisdom on us, so I don't, I don't want to keep him too long there, but, uh, it was, it's been a, it's been a good opener. I'll say that much. It feels good to, to have a few bounces for the old panoramic crew. And, oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> get things rolling early on eh there's more to come 
All right. Welcome back. And I'd just uh, like to take a moment here to welcome Barry Good from Dirty Lake Outfitters uh, to the podcast. Barry, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. How's it going tonight? Good. Good. Just uh, busy getting some gear ready for the upcoming season. We start guiding in a, in a week here. So just getting our stuff prepared. Cool. Yeah. I was saying uh, just in some of the preamble, I was surprised we caught you. Uh, this time of year, but we're, we're glad you took the time to join us on the, on the podcast here. And so, uh, we'll definitely hop into a little bit of gear, um, and what the, the outfitting looks like. But before we do that, we subject all our guests to our, our five burning questions here. And these are just questions. They're meant to be rapid fire, but some people have been known to take up to 45 minutes to answer them. So, uh, do with it what you will. Uh, but they're just made to get a better sense of, uh, of you as a person, uh, so uh, I can kick us off. So burning question, uh, right now, or number one here, Barry, is what's one piece of gear that you uh, never leave the house without? Well, obviously one piece of gear I never leave the house without is a good hide. You know, a good blind. That's that's key. You can you can put whatever out for decoys or parachute. You need a good blind to to be concealed for for any kind of hunting. So when you're go- you're going to the grocery store, you make sure you bring your your blind with you. Is that how? When you said hide, actually, I first thought you meant like moose hide or something. So I just had like this vision of you wrapped in like a. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, yeah, either a layout blind or a or an A-frame blind is key. That's the key to success. Okay. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll make a note of that too because I want to pick your brain on the difference between the the A-frames and the layouts. Um, because that always seems to be a, a topic of discussion there in some ways. Um, okay, next question is: uh, If you, uh, where do you get inspiration from? Like, obviously, you can. It could be about hunting. It could be about life. But uh, like, where do you, where do you find inspiration in in your day to day here? Uh, I probably find my inspiration personally. For me, I grew up. I had a lot of uncles and great uncles that that were passionate waterfowlers, you know, and, and you're, you're raised around that, that kind of group of, uh, guys. And it just kind of, you know, it just kind of was instilled into me that that's what I wanted to do. And that was, I love all hunting, but waterfowl is definitely my passion. And, and the other part of it is I love taking, uh, new people out and getting to, you know, we do a lot of mentored hunts in, in the area where I live. We've been doing them for 20 years. So <clears throat> taking kids out and then, you know, that transformed into starting an outfitting business with a friend. And it's a lot of pleasure to, you know, take clients out and show them what we have up here in Manitoba. Absolutely. That's that's very cool. And I'm thinking we'll touch on quite a bit of that coming up there. But uh so far, we're we're doing we're right on pace for the burners here. Sheldon, you got the the next couple. Yeah, I got the next few here. Um, it's pretty exciting to be on the podcast. Barry has been like a neighbor to my hometown, Minneapolis and Nipah. Like it's like uh, Springville or Springfield and Shelbyville, Minneapolis, obviously Shelbyville. But um, I think <laughs> we would disagree with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but my first question for you, I guess, is like when you're not waterfowl hunting, you said you did bunch hunting. What like what do you what do you do otherwise uh, outdoors? Uh, I love ice fishing. I bear hunt. 
actually guide for another friend, an outfitter of mine, uh, guide for bear in the spring when I can, moose, elk hunt, deer hunt. Yeah, you name it. Nice. Any, Whatever you any, get drawn any. for. Yeah, absolutely. Right on. The fourth question is a question I've asked everyone, I think, on the podcast, all 60 or 150-some guests. But if you had uh, one last meal on this earth, what would you have and what would you have to drink with it? I would probably have elk steak and red wine. There you go. A they, couple they bottles. nice. Yeah, a couple <laughs> bottles for sure. That sounds like trophy night if I've ever heard one before. Yeah. Yeah, that's our trophy night. <laughs> My last question for you is kind of a newer one I've been asking people. Uh, but if you had like, I call it fuck you money. You just got like a bunch of money that you can't invest. You can't give it to your family. You got to look after yourself, buy a toy, do whatever. What would you do? If I had a lot of that money, I would be buying land. Buying land. That's an investment, but we'll we'll take it. (laughs) (laughs) Or more decoys. They get expensive. Yeah. Right on. Well, you made it through the five burning questions without uh, too many scars. So that's good. Uh, it's always fun to do those right off the bat and kind of get the grease on the on the wheels here. Tristan, are you starting off this or? Yeah, yeah. I was just wondering, Barry, maybe you could you kind of started on the the origins of the guiding there. You got into it with a friend there through some of the mentored hunts, but do you kind of want to take us into that into greater detail just to get a sense of like where you're coming from, where you're experienced, that kind of thing, and like uh, you know what what guiding mean means to you. Right. How, how uh, did uh, how did sorry how did Dirty Lake Outfitters get up and running? Is maybe how I should frame it. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I guess probably when I moved to this area back in 2002, I was already doing a little bit of guiding for whitetail for a couple of friends back in my hometown, and and helping them out where they had uh, they had bow hunters that came every fall, and then you know that that turned into some of them wanted to do some morning bird hunts before, you know, to do kind of a package. So they asked me if I could help set them up and stuff. And, and so then I got moved over to Minnedosa and, and got right away. I got uh, met up with some local people that were part of the Delta waterfowl uh, chapter that was starting to, that was about year two of the first mentored waterfowl hunts for kids back in uh, 02 there and so we we started doing the youth hunts and you know waterfowl outfitting and guiding was it was getting pretty popular and and in the area and and of course you know social media hadn't really started but the videos and tv shows were starting up and so we you know we just got together one night and said hey you know like we should maybe give this a try and and uh so we went through all the proper channels and applied for a license and everything and started out with uh, one group the first year and the next year we got two groups and then after that it just kind of snowballed and it was basically all word of mouth by then and here we are you know 20 22 years later and still still giving her yeah I got a probably a million questions when it comes to waterfowl guiding uh, and outfitting but before we get to some of them where so where did dirty lake where did your name come from uh, the name we thought we would pick a name that really stood out, so we just kind of looked at at uh, you know the area, the local area, and just west of Minnedosa, there's an actual lake called Dirty Lake out, oh, out nice. towards yeah. So nice. it's like yeah, that that name will probably 
you know, stick around. <laughs> well, and for Manitoba, especially, it seems like all our lakes aren't like dirty per se, but like they're all muddy for out. Like, you know what I mean? Like, uh, they're not dirty, but I don't know. Yeah. Dirty. Color yeah, I mean, yeah. It's named yeah. dirty lake. It's just a big marsh. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Yeah. I think of waterfowl hunting. I don't think clean. That's for sure. So I, uh, <laughs> there's always, I'm always muddy for some reason, one or the other. So that, that, made complete sense to me as soon as I heard it. It's like, oh yeah, it sounds like a waterfowl falling outfit 100%. So yeah, that's awesome. Um, So you, you mentioned like 20 years ago, you had started just with like a, a client or two tagged on to like a, a deer hunt. And uh, what's Dirty Lake expecting this year, 2023? How many, how many kind of clients or folks are you planning to uh, help outfit this year? Um, yeah, this year we're kind of pretty much back to normal, like pre COVID levels. So we're, we're in that, uh, 60 clients range Wow, over a month. Yeah. That's crazy. The, the thing when it comes to clients too, like from day one, let's say to now, like how many repeat customers do you expect a year? Like, do you get a lot of repeat every year? Yeah, I would say we're probably pushing 80% return customers. That's awesome. And, and it, it would be higher than that, but you know, some guys come every second year. So then you can fill a few spots with new clients and, and uh, yeah, it's, and, and a lot of the, the new clients are word of mouth as well. Mm-hmm. My, uh, we help my uncle like once in a while, my brother more so would help him. He, he actually helped guide for him, but he ran an outfit back in the two thousands to in nineties and stuff like that. Um, and he always prided himself on the re- return customers because he felt that that was like a good benchmark for like your, your customer service in a lot of ways. So like 80% seems like it's a heck of a number. The, the other thing he mentioned too, cause he ran bear and moose and deer as well, whitetail. He, uh, <laughs> he thought w- waterfowl guiding was probably like the toughest guiding that you could be doing because, uh it was just such long days and you had to put in a ton of work scouting and it was a ton of miles, like, uh, 60 clients is a lot of clients. How do you, how do you manage that all in the, in the fall air barrier? Yeah. So <clears throat> when we originally started, you know, our, our company, Dirty Lake Outfitters, it was just, uh, my partner, John Krasiewski and myself. And, you know, back then we were running 20 guys over two or three weeks and, it was very manageable. So then, you know, as, as we grew over the years, probably in the last 10 years, then we, you know, we'd hire a a local guy to help us guide, guide for us for, you know, a week or 10 days or whatever. And, and then uh, we ended up adding uh, another partner, Sam Parrish. So he became a partner with us. And uh, so, yeah, so the three of us, run it full time we all take our holidays together to do it and then we hire an extra guide or two as needed throughout the season and yeah it's just it is a lot of work it is <laughs> you know bear bear guiding is a lot of work too but you do have a little bit of downtime where you know this yeah. is your first thing in the morning till you know a couple hours after dark every night so yeah you don't get to drop anyone off in a tree stand eh no, no, that's for sure. 
Yeah. You're there, you're there calling and waving the flag and picking up the birds, I bet, eh? Yeah. And if it's not (laughs) your turn to be in the field guiding, then you're, you know, you're running the road scouting, putting miles on. Yeah. Do you, do you collapse after the three weeks or are you uh, energized by it all? Uh, you know, we usually take a couple of days right after we're done just to rest up. And then, and then we try to get out ourselves and get our family and friends out a little bit to end the season off. Yeah. What, um, with the new stuff with, uh, conservation coming through, what's that look like for a, for a business side of things? And, and I, I don't know all the details, so maybe you can fill us in with some of them as well, but, um, the change was is that if you were a non-resident or American or whatever, you'd have to get a guide to hunt in Manitoba, right? Uh, uh, not not necessarily. Like part of it, the uh, <clears throat> the government um, with a collaboration of the MWF and the Manitoba Lodge Association and also other stakeholders like Delta Waterfowl and DU, they you know they work together on on this for quite a few months or years and so they came up with a new uh, waterfowl modernization strategy and basically it was to protect the resource we have like one of the biggest things was land access was becoming tougher and tougher you know for everyone not just not just residents Um, it's for everyone residents freelancers outfitters everyone's you know, there's more and more stories of not competition, but just, you know, there's, there is competition for land access. That's for sure. So yeah, this year they changed it. So, uh, waterfowl outfitters were, became allocated this year. So we, we had to send in information over a period of four years prior to COVID. So 2016 to 2019 and what our average amount of clients we had over those four years is what we were allocated okay so so if you you're a you know an american and you wanted to come hunt in manitoba this year if you were going through an outfitter you had to you know make sure you talk to them got your license spoken for and freelancers um had this this year they had to put in a draw so this year they're allowed to put in a draw and you're you have it was a hundred percent success rate and you were allowed uh, one seven day license. Okay. So then there is no option for a 10 day or 14 day hunt or anything like, I guess nobody really comes up for that long that I know, but uh, yeah. yeah. So like, like the thing is, it's like uh, of an outsider kind of looking into that conservation world too, in ways when it comes to like laws and legislation and everything else, as far as I know or can see, from boots on the ground is that we have a lot of waterfowl as it is. So is this like strictly a land thing or it can't be like a, like a bird thing. Cause we have lots of birds in the area, no matter where we go, it seems. Right. Yeah, it is land access and you know, it, it would help curb um, illegal outfitting because right. there is, there is, you know, there is illegal outfitting that's been going on in the province for years. And it's, it's such a gray area in the regulations that it, it was hard to uh for resources to you know kind of i guess pursue it right. and you know you'd have you hear of different groups would come up and buy a little 
cabin or whatever and you know they come and hunt for a week and then next next thing you know they're bringing four friends and then that you know the guy owns a cabin staying another week and bringing another four friends so it was kind of snowballing and and you know i think it it couldn't it probably happened at probably the best time it could you know like to start putting some of these regulations in or or the the way you know everyone knows them uh the way america works is it's a basic pay to play you know you're for you to hunt waterfowl in the states if you're not part of a duck club then it's a mad rush for public land so it's kind of you know this is going to hopefully keep things the way it is and make it you know accessible for everyone so everyone can still go knock on a door and and get access to be able to hunt right and then like prior to this these changes did you notice any of that type of pressure like as a as an outfitter uh etc like could you see this coming that kind of idea yeah yeah we probably have in the last you know 10 years for sure maybe closer to 15 you could see the pressure rising and and more and more you know guys were buying a little piece of land or or a cabin and you know turning it into a a little duck camp and and yeah and uh i think uh, um chris healed from mwf's you know he was i listened to him on a podcast not too long ago and he was saying you know him and his son went out where their their hometown was and his son knocked on 11 doors and got turned away 11 times because you know the land was tied up or they had americans there hunting so so just putting some of these, you know, a little bit of restriction in place or maybe curb some of this, you know, land access issue and, and people coming up to buy land solely for that. Right. Right. So like as an outfitter before this, did you ever have like, you go on knocking on doors and they're like, I oh, know we got these, these other Americans and it kind of like just irks you a bit that they're kind of freelancing and you know what uh, I mean? Like it. Yeah. There's definitely, you know, some, landowners they develop relationships with with uh, some u.s guys that come every year and you know and they're and they they will uh give them priority over local outfitters for sure and and even residents too so yeah it has definitely changed like it from when the from the time we started to now it's yeah definitely it's increased a lot yeah i just know like me and my father we do quite a bit of waterfowl hunting and um for myself not in the last few years just from other uh engagements but he still does quite a bit and i know like there was times a few years ago where you'd get like just the amazing oat field with or whatever maybe it was barley and there'd be green heads flying there like crazy and he's like we gotta be there at like four in the morning like no one's gonna beat us there because yeah. the landowner had gave permission to multiple people right so um, but yeah, that kind of brings me to my next question. Hopefully I'm not taking them all away from Tristan, but, uh, like when it comes to land access, can you give us like, um, some, maybe some etiquette, maybe some tips and tricks, like what you guys do? Um, I know like a lot of times, uh, for myself, like getting into, uh, looking for fields and stuff. I know a lot of the people that are local and, you know, making those phone calls are obviously the one thing, but, you know, going and just seeing the guy or, or anything like that like what do you guys do there yeah it's it's the same with us like we know a lot of the landowners you know we live in the area yeah we raised our kids in the area so 
we know the landowners, but it's still, you know, the best, the best etiquette thing I can do or say is always ask permission. You know, we always phone the night before because you never know who else has got permission and, and who's asked and always try to, you know, make sure we've thanked them at the end of the season or, you know, lots of times if we get goose sausage or pepperettes or whatever made, we'll give them a couple of packs or whatever, just to say thank you or their yeah. favorite bottle or whatever. Right. So. Yeah, for sure. And I know like even I've learned a lot growing up and stuff like cleaning up your shells. And I know the one thing like my dad never does is like if the field's remotely like damp, we won't even drive like into it. Like we'll haul our stuff out. Like you don't want to rut things up, you know, so all you new bird hunters out there, some of those things put in your back pocket for when you're going out, out into the field. Yeah. Um, that, that's a big thing. Respect the land. Like we leave it, we try to leave it exactly how it was when we, when we drove into the field. So you're a hundred percent right there. I was wondering too, is like, um, like looking more at the, the guiding side or the guiding angle of, of the, the business as you can, as you, got deeper into the business as you got more experience was there something that surprised you about like the waterfowling outfitting like was there something maybe you were less prepared for like what was what was something maybe that was like oh i never really thought that this would be a thing in my guiding experience i i can think of a few from the podcast side like how much work goes into editing and, and things like that but uh um from the the waterfowling side like uh it's, I, I feel like it's one thing to be a waterfowler, but like another thing to be like hosting people and, and trying to ensure folks have the best time that they can while they're up here. Yeah, for sure. Like I would say the biggest thing is organizational skills. Mm. Like you, you have to be super organized to like we run, you know, our guys, our U.S. hunter starts September 24th and we basically run every single day until until we're done so like september 24th october 24th you know so all the logistics of making sure guys have uh rooms booked or they're which you know if they're flying into winnipeg and and making making sure that you know sometimes there's not nowadays there's not rental vehicles available so you know you have to have make sure people can pick them up at the airport or have a rental a rental vehicle ready for them Mm -hmm. and just it's yeah it is a ton of work behind the scenes for sure sounds like my my day job too is kind of <laughs> yeah a lot of a lot of coordinating for sure um and it's it, that that melts the brain after a while too <laughs> um and then i was wondering too like you you mentioned you have to bring on a few guides and obviously you have experience yourself and maybe um, some of your partners as well, obviously. I was wondering, like, what do you think are some like good qualities of a guy? Like, what would you look for if you're hiring a guy, or like, what do you try to like put out there as a guide? That's something that uh, you think attracts either customers or or does the business well. I, I think you know a, a good quality in a guide. Obviously, they need to have the the skills to be able to call ducks and and geese and be able to scout and everything else, but your personality is huge. You have to have a good personality to, cause you're, you're every three or four days, you're dealing with a new group of clients and you'll have some that are very rigid and, you know, proper and everything else. And then you have the ones that are a little wild. So you got to be able to 
<laughs> you got to be able to deal with both every aspect and every type of client. Yeah, I was I was always struck by that when my my brother was outfitting. He was talking about just how much he had to like either adapt or like um, basically he had to shoot the shit with guys for three weeks straight or something like that, depending or like a week at a time straight, depending on who was up and how they were. So you had to find a way to relate, like you said, to to people on a on a bit of a long term basis here. You're stuck in camp sometimes with folks like he would run a lot of out camps. So um <laughs> you you have to like that person whether uh you like him on the outside or not or on the inside or not, right? So it was kinda I I don't think he had any horror stories, but uh he, he's always he mentioned like it's yeah, you got, you have to be kind of like a personable kind of person out there too for sure. Yeah. The, uh, the I got one here there, Tristan, yeah, is that uh, like just I have one more question with the guide and then I want to kind of talk about kind of your, some of your setups, maybe if, uh, if you want to share them, I guess, but um, like what, it, like for a guy to come up to, to Canada or whatever to hunt with you um, and my, and the, I guess the flip side of it is like the Canadians, like, do you guys have many Canadian clients that like uh, either locals or from other provinces that come over and hunt with you? Um, yeah, actually we're, the last few years we've been getting a few inquiries from Eastern Canada. So this year we have a group coming out actually starting on Monday and they're, they're coming out from Prince Edward Island. Oh, nice. so, that, so that's a first for us. We've had, you know, a couple from Ontario here and there, and I do have one local group. There's some, their old family friends or whatever that the one, one fellow's from Alberta and he's coming out to get his family to, together to hunt with us for three days so that's cool yeah because like <clears throat> that region by minnedosa like it's like the pothole region of manitoba that's a, a huge attraction for waterfowls i think all over north america is it not yeah for sure the prairie pothole region you know basically from minnedosa to saskatchewan you know it's it's the prairie pothole region and a lot of birds are born and raised here yeah and you were you were mentioning you were you were just out on a mentor youth hunt the other day and the there was some cool you you said there was some snow was coming down already yeah actually the cranes they started migrating a couple weeks ago but I seen uh, two or three snows mixed in for, with some Canada's the other day and you know I didn't think too much of it but we uh, we took fifteen kids out on their first waterfowl hunts this weekend through our Minnedosa Game of Fish group and. The one one group actually had a flock of snows come into their decoys, and the one young fella shot his you know first blue goose. So it was oh, kind of nice. cool. Yeah. So yeah, I did hear actually today. I heard a flock of snows flying by. So the migration's just starting. Yeah, you mentioned cranes. Do you guys dabble in those at all? I guess we, not. If the migrations are a little earlier. Yeah, we don't like we. Well, right now we'll have some cranes around, but typically they they migrate further west and the you know towards the saskatchewan border that area over there further so we yeah. don't tar we don't target them there's uh we deer hunt where we used to deer hunt quite a bit by sinclair like south of Erdon there and you know at this time and then right into october those fields there'd be thousands of cranes in there i couldn't believe it. i didn't even know that like they flocked like that to be honest i'd never seen them around people like in groups that big anyways but that's crazy 
Um, Tristan, do you have any more questions about kind of the guiding thing? And if not, I'd like to switch things over to like decoys and stuff. Yeah, I'd add one more, just like thinking about like when you when you're prepping clients, maybe let's pretend they're a new client, Barry. Are you are you telling them is there some essential information you're sharing with them before they come out this way? Is there any kind of pro tips or like what are you telling them? Like, don't, don't forget your licenses at home or like your licenses are covered here, but like, don't, don't forget your, your headlamps at home, but like any kind of FYIs that you give folks before they, they head our way. Yeah, absolutely. Like we we're in contact with our clients, you know, fairly steady, like fairly often throughout the year um, once they book. And then as we get closer, we make sure they have all the information for licenses and, and their forms for, for declaring their guns coming across the border. So they make sure all that's, you know, everything, all that information's there emailed out to them so they, they have it at, at hand. And then basic, yeah, just whether they want shells supplied up here because they, you know, they're flying and they can't obviously take them, take them on the commercial airline or you're very limited in what you can bring for weight. So, and just, how to pack properly for for the weather because you know it could be 70 degrees or it could be you know just above freezing so it's you gotta be prepared for everything up here yeah we were hunting we were almost hunting in shorts last weekend and that it, uh it, it changes pretty quickly though you you get the you appreciate the neoprene uh as the season goes on i'll, I'll say that much um and then I was wondering, did, were you guys hit by the shell, like the am, ammunition shortage at all, or is that not really like a, a issue for you guys? Um, it's not. I mean, it's just an issue everywhere right now. But we we figured out how much we needed, you know, months and months ago, and and pre-ordered so we'd make sure we had. And we don't supply a lot just for some of the guys flying, but most guys that drive bring their own, obviously. Um, but yeah, it is. It is quite a shortage. That's for sure. Uh, I got it. Well, this is like a huge Q and A right now. But I got another question about guiding, um, and it's about dogs. Like I know a lot of Americans like to bring their own dogs. Do you guys have your own dogs, or, or like what's what's your ideas behind them? Like what are you guys running for dogs? Exactly. Yeah, myself, I've ran labs. I got right now. I got a yellow lab. She's ten, almost eleven. So she's she's winding down on her career. Um, some guys bring their own and that's totally fine. You know, like they, it's their hunt. And if they want to bring their dog, by all means, for sure, bring your dog. And, but lots, lots of field hunting really don't require it. And I right. always have my, I always have mine with me. So if there's, you know, they need to look for a cripple or whatever, then the dog's there hopefully to help find it. How many how many times out of ten do they bring up a dog in here and the dog's not good in the field? It's like should have left your dog at home. I would <laughs> I would say not very often. Usually no. you know the guys that bring dogs they're they're running hunt tests and stuff. They're oh, yeah. fairly, See, fairly have, well trained. Must have seen some impressive uh retrievers then. What was what's been like if you can think of one that's kind of always stood out in your mind like what's one breed that's a that's a good water dog other than a lab like we've had labs all our lives i think tristan as well he's got a new dog this year or last few years but yeah um most guys have labs but they're we've had a few guys that had chesapeake's and they're pretty good yeah pretty pretty tough dogs hard yeah. hard-headed but 
<laughs> they're still good. The ones I've seen have been pretty really good retrievers. Yeah. And like, no offense anyway, what's the worst uh, bird dog that you just like, oh man, no, I would never buy one. Uh, I don't know if there's a worse, like a bad one. I've, I've seen some guys with some Springer Spaniels that are super bird dogs in the water and they got a hell of a nose on them. I, I would just say it doesn't matter what the breed is. If it, if it's not trained, it, right. it probably shouldn't be there because <laughs> we had one time we had a guy's, it was a Chesapeake and it wouldn't come out. Like once it got in the water, it wouldn't come out of the water. It swam in circles. <laughs> and he had he had to actually go in and get it. Oh, that's hilarious! So, but hey, it's your hunt. You know, you want to bring the dog all the way from wherever you live, and yeah, yeah. I know. Uh, even with our dog Trigger, we've had him for eight or nine years now, and <clears throat> awesome retriever. But any like, I don't know what happened to him when he was younger, or what if he got scared by a big like Greater Canada, but he will not pick up a goose. That's like. Like a great, he won't pick up a big Canada goose, and uh, he's up like over a hundred pounds. Like he's a big chocolate lab, like big, big head, big. You know what I mean? And he's just yeah. for some reason just won't pick up a big goose. But Dad's been working on him for years, and I think the last few years he has. But I remember the first four or five years there, he was just a little chicken shit there. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but honestly, like my my eleven year old yellow lab, if there's a big goose laying there and there's two two ducks. 100 yards away she's gonna leave that goose and go for the ducks every time she <laughs> she hates picking those things up oh yeah huh. work smarter not harder that's right maybe the guy will <laughs> grab it yeah that's funny if you're listening to this episode we know you love local and so do we that's why we're going to encourage you to check out your local co-op co-op is in over 600 communities across western canada with over 2 million members co-ops are a member driven organization that serve the local community you can check out co-ops for all your food fuel home and construction as well as agricultural needs a membership costs you ten dollars to get in and you're going to see that back in equity you don't need a membership to shop at co-op but you'd be missing out on all the equity and most importantly your say and how that company runs for groceries if you want to shop online you can check it out online at shop.crs and select markets there's hundreds of local products sourced and packaged all across Western Canada and even free cookies for children in store at the deli counter. If you're looking at a home and building experience, they have local experts available to help with any plant, large or small, and free home and garage blueprints available for online download. Their gas stations are not just a great place to stop for fuel, but also for snacks and a recharge. They're available all across Western Canada Voted the cleanest bathrooms, they have full service at most locations, and car washes at most locations. On the egg side, Co-op's been in the business since 1930 and has continued to lead the way in not just energy products needed for seeding, harvesting, and everything in between, but also in the growing inventory of high-quality products including crop inputs and feed that Co-op manufactures and distributes. Co-op's private label production selection is growing every year, providing growers with the high-quality products they expect from the name they trust. Co-op also offers a range of fuel, lubricant, and propane products, and also provides farm buildings, grain bins, bulk fuel, fuel tanks, livestock equipment, fencing, and heaters. Wherever you are, 
be sure to check out your local co-op because they have it all. I was wondering about guiding a kind of almost like a philosophy. What are you trying to deliver? What kind of experience are you trying to deliver to, uh, to the folks coming up to, to see you or, or to be part of Dirty Lake Outfitters? Um, obviously you want them to have a good, a good hunt. So you're looking at having good hunting. Um, we put into our outfitting and our, you know, what we put in for our clients is what we would expect to go out and hunt every day. You know, you, you want them to have a, a good hunt and enjoy their time in our area. You know, we, we go to restaurants a lot for supper and, and breakfasts and stuff and, and support the local businesses. And, and the guys, a lot of guys, you know, they get to, they've been with, some of them have been with us for 20 years. So they, they get to know a few people around town and, like to visit with them when they're up here and and yeah it's it's not always you know everyone loves to shoot full limits but it's not always about that it's it's the whole experience mm-hmm. so you're you're working hard too then to make sure that they they feel like they're connected to minidosa in some way too whether it's being out on town or, or connecting with a few of the locals around uh around the community yep absolutely yeah some of yeah. some some of them have hunted here even longer than that. We have one group of of guys that, you know, they started. This will be their, two of the guys this year will be their 50th year hunting in the Minidos area. Oh, wow. Wow. And and they used to come and freelance and go on their own. And, and then they started hunting with, you know, some local guys. And as they got older, they just, they just couldn't do it anymore. So then they, you know, asked us if they could start coming and hunting with Dirty Lake and, and that way we can, you know, help them and you can drive right, drive them right to the field or whatever. And, and they still can experience it. And, you know, some of these guys are 88 years old and they're still coming. Like huh. put us That's in next cool. year. As soon, as soon as they're done, it's like, we want these dates next year. So yeah. It's, That's cool. That's, that's really awesome. And you know, like the one thing about, I don't know how I'm going to frame this question, but I watched, I guess, you guys on uh, Canada the Rough, and one thing that Canada the Rough did is they like really emphasized on like uh, Minnedosa and being local and supporting local businesses and stuff like that. Um, having film crews with you and stuff, do you find the pressure even more than than just your regular Joe coming coming hunting, or how does that all work when there's a video camera behind you? Yeah, there's there's definitely added pressure for sure. There, um, Canada and the Rough are super guys. They're easy to easy to you know work with and and obviously you're trying there's definitely places and hunts that you have to pass up because you have a camera crew and the amount of footage that you require to do a tv show is uh it's unbelievable like you need fields that are you know stacked with birds and just to get enough but there's certain fields that you know we would take our clients there and and hunt and have a really good hunt, but it just wouldn't work for a camera crew. So you have to pass some of those good hunts up just because of that. Yeah. You're hiding the extra bodies. You need, you probably need lots of land, like big spreads probably. Right. Yeah. Big spreads. And you're, you got camera guys you're hiding and yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of work. Yeah. Um, and just to follow up on that, like <clears throat> how many times, I don't know how to even ask this question, but I've been this, a lot of times, I wouldn't say a lot of times, there have been a, quite a few times, let's say, 
you find the perfect field the night before you go out there in the morning and five geese fly over that happens at dirty lake too does it not absolutely if if it doesn't happen at every, in everyone's <laughs> lifetime they're liars yeah, yeah. It, it happens yeah yeah, it's, you don't know, like somebody, somebody scared them off the roost that night with farm equipment, or you know, just you know, that's hunting. You you know, that's why they call it hunting and not shooting. You just you just have no idea what's going to happen, and that's part yeah. of the fun of it. Oh yeah, for sure. And like right now, we have a pea field that we've been watching for the last little while, just kind of waiting for everything to kind of grow in numbers, I guess. And then the other the other night. I went by there and there wasn't a goose in the field and I'm like, damn it. And then the next night my old man phoned me and said, Oh yeah, they're all back in there. So uh, they must've maybe had a night off or like you said, maybe they got scared off by some firemen or whatever, but yeah, it's crazy how that works sometimes. Yeah. Even, even an Eagle, you know, chases them off the field and they're going to, everything's going to take off for a day and, and then they'll hopefully come back. Oh yeah. Yeah. Tristan um, guiding questions. Yeah. I was, I was wondering, we, at the five burners there, we had brought up blinds or hides and um, you'd mentioned both a frames and layouts. And I was wondering if you had opinions on pros and cons of either one of those. Do you, do you tend to default to one style? Like what are, what's your thinking on those two style blinds? Um, I think everything, everything has its cycle. Like, you know, layout blinds we used for many years and before A-frames became popular and we were finding, you know, the birds were obviously getting seasoned to them and picking them out. So then you're, you know, you're changing how you use them. And, and then we actually went back to the old, you know, wooden two by four with willow blinds just to change things up because they look more natural. And then, you know, as A-frames started becoming popular, then we switched over to A-frames and, Right now, we're basically using A-frames, I would say, 90% of the time in, in the field field yeah. uh, setups. I'm glad Tristan brought that up because that was kind of where I wanted to go next, was kind of like the evolution of decoys and and blinds. Like, back when you first started, what were you guys running for blinds back then? There's no layout blinds then, was there? Uh, when we first started, yeah, we that was when finisher layout blinds, Avery finishers okay. were the first yeah. blinds that we we picked up and yeah, before that you just laid with a backrest and, you know, some burlap with straw on it and stuff. And, and, yeah. uh, the evolution of the layout blind sure made things a lot more comfortable. <laughs> yeah, but, exactly. But now with the, with the A-frames where you're sitting on a chair, you know, and it's a lot more social, you're all sitting in one blind together, you know, other, rather than a bunch of layout blinds spread out through the, through the spread. It's it's a lot more fun and social sitting in an A-frame together. Yeah. And like for an A-frame, I know there's probably some listeners that have done layout blinds by themselves, like only done layout blinds. But can you maybe explain how you would set up an A-frame, like with what you'd covered in and, and how it sets up for how many people you got, et cetera? Like say if me and Tristan went hunting tomorrow, how would you set up an A-frame for a hunt? Yeah. So obviously you're going to set your decoys out and with – whatever wind direction you're you're given by uh nature and so your a frame we typically don't set it with the wind straight at your back we set it off on the corners and back it out of the decoys 
you know, you make your pockets where you want the birds to land, but we back those A-frames out of the decoy is probably a good 20 yards. Just, oh, okay. just so they're not looking at it directly and yeah, off, off the corners is where we like to set them up. Nice. And what do you, what are you like packing it with? Like just like slough grass or like, what do you do in there? Yep. Slough, slough grass and willows. We, oh, yeah. when we first bought them, we put, we bought the grass mats out of, out of, from Avery or Tango Free or whatever company was selling them. And we had those on there with willows and, and then we just went to natural, you know, slough grass. Right. And, and do you ever have to change that? Like when you go to different like crops, like say if you went from a, a wheat to a pea field or whatever, like, or are they always just kind of the same? No, the, we, we don't change the grass in at all. We do is add willows and, and some trees, you know, poplar trees with leaves for the first while before they start, everything starts dropping and yeah, just add that little bit of green on there and breaks up the, the square box outline of the, of the blind. Right. Cool. Cool. Uh, and I was wondering about decoys too. They've changed a lot. I haven't bought decoys in a while, but they've sure changed a lot since I've uh, been in the game with the decoy purchasing game. Now there's like, it seems like there's vortex decoys that could make a tornado on you with like five different whirlwind kind of robo ducks at the same time. Like, is there, is there, merit in those or like what do, what do you like to run in the field what do you find is useful um ba- well basically we run full body canada goose decoys and then there's days where we all use silhouettes it all depends on on uh the conditions whether it's muddy or frosty or whatever but i really don't think there's a wrong decoy like we have sometimes just as good a luck with 10 dozen silhouettes as we do 10 dozen full bodies so we just, we just, depending on what conditions we're given, that's what we decide what we're using that day. And, and, uh, yeah, spinning wings obviously work really good for ducks. The mojo decoys are lucky ducks. We use the lucky ducks and had good success with them. But, but like everything, the, the birds are wise to them now. They only work for so long and, and then you're messing with them, shutting them on and off, taking them down, putting them up, trying whatever you have to, to, get the birds to work yeah do you guys run like those like flags at all um yeah we'll have a flag sometimes we'll flag you know out of the blinds okay like the a-frame blind you can flag at a distance but then i have we have a couple that are kind of set on a remote little stand that you have a pull pull string or whatever and you can make it flap on the opposite side of the spread to keep them looking away from from your oh, blind yeah. yeah that's cool yeah yeah we we um like our setup right now hey you might laugh at it but whatever um my dad took an old boat trailer put a floor on it and then we willow blinded in and he's got like two shop two or three shop stools in there and the dog can go in there and it actually works really really well and we just camo up and but that's the one thing like we use the flag quite a bit just to try to pull them back over and then it seems like they're looking right at you though so yeah. that whole uh, that mechanism might work out. I might have to put it in my uh, back pocket this this fall. Um, the other the other question I had about like decoys. So when you um, you say silhouettes, like what are you referring to there? The silhouettes, they're just like they're they call them skinnies or silhouettes. They're just a flat, you know, built out of plastic or whatever, and a stake, the shape of a 
of a full of a shape of a goose or a duck and painted and flocked or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So, so for someone starting out, like they're easy to transport. You don't need a trailer. You know, it'd be they're perfect for somebody can get a you know five or six dozen of them and and have a decent spread and throw it all in the back of a truck. Yeah. You ever use those like I don't know what people call exactly we call them silo socks but like the ones that like kind of like flap in the wind you know they're like uh snow goose hunters use them all the time yeah um, yeah we got some silo socks for snow geese and and some full body snow goose decoys as well that we use in certain situations like a lot of years we didn't have many snow geese around so we never used them and then the last year was more snow geese than we'd seen in quite a few years so Oh, actually really? did did have some decent hunts yeah oh that's good yeah because i remember like even growing up like when i was first started hunting we would go on quite a few snow goose hunts and now like you barely find a snow goose field uh and maybe one or two a year but remember back in the day used to, there used to be lots around um so like when you get the, your whole setup done and you can't get those birds to commit what are some of the things that you're doing to to bring those birds in like other than using your flag and calling like is there anything else that you guys do out of the ordinary probably the first thing you look at is you're blind just to make yeah. sure it's you know something's not right or move it we will change sides with it or whatever that's usually the first thing or move it out of the decoys further um yeah it's change some decoys around to open more pockets spread it out make it yeah there's you'll just try whatever you have to in your bag of tricks to try and get it. But there's days where it just doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. The other, the other follow question I had too is like, do you ever find like dead birds on the ground? Do you collect them right away? I, we always get in arguments, me and my buddies about it. I'm like, no, go grab those birds and bring them over here. Like dead birds on the ground are going to make them flare. But do you have any preference that way? Yeah. We, we like to collect them right away, especially, you know, there's, you get a few laying out, out there, belly up, especially geese. Yeah. You know, ducks blend in really quite well, so they're, they're not as big of an issue. But we we try to pick them up after every volley or, you know, if you have a couple of groups come in one after another type of thing, and then we go and collect them and get them tucked away in the blind or whatever. Yeah. And can you recall what the shortest, maybe the shortest hunt you've been on? Have you had any of those, like just had everything line up uh like i can think of a few foggy mornings in my own experience where they felt like the geese were just landing on your head and you just basically in in about 20 minutes you were everything was kind of over 30 minutes it felt you know that quick yeah are are you getting mornings like that once in a while out, out your way oh absolutely yeah those happen when the stars align and you get you know you get a hot field and everything's in your favor it it can happen yeah we've had guys you know six guys limit out on ducks in less than 20 minutes and it's just mayhem <laughs> what's the what's the morale like after a morning like that are the guys pretty or the, is the crew pretty psyched up or is obviously oh. i would imagine a eh? oh yeah absolutely they're they're pumped like you know they some of them will have some decent hunting in the states and they have some really good hunting opportunities but nothing compares to what you see here for numbers and the way the birds work in the in the dry fields yeah is, sorry, is there a got... popular sorry Tristan. 
Is, is there a popular bird that Americans are after, like, other than, like, a Canada goose, let's say, but, like, for, is there a popular bird they want? I would say almost 100% of them are here for the ducks, mallard oh, yeah. ducks. Yeah. Nice. Hmm. Interesting. And was uh, was anyone, like, itching to to name you the godfather of their kids or something after one of those 20 minute hunts or like how, uh, how friendly were the guys getting after? Some of those? No, no, I don't think we go, they go that far, but yeah, they're pretty happy. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. And then I'm, I'm shifting more to post hunt here, but obviously you, you deal with your, your fair bit of processing and, and that of waterfowl, I'm wondering though, I'm always curious, like if anyone's got a good recipe up their sleeve, what's, what's your kind of preferred method there in, in cooking waterfowl berry? Do you have a, do you have a way you like to do her up or a couple? Uh, for sure. I got a couple, like I love ducks and like late season ducks when you pluck a, pluck those breasts and, you know, roast them. And, and even when you barbecue grill the, grill the breasts with the, the skin and the fat on there, it's, oh yeah. That's one of my favorite um, early season when, you know, they're all penny and that and we fillet the meat off them. And I, uh, one of my favorite recipes is duck gumbo, obviously mm. it's, it's yeah, it is super good. That, that'll duck warm, yeah. I imagine that duck gumbo would warm you up on one of those late season days too. Oh yeah. I like to make a big batch and have lots on hand. Yeah. yeah. It's easy easy to warm up for lunches and stuff now now i gotta get technical with you do you use the okra when you when you make gumbo or do you use something else to kind of thicken it no we we cheat and use something else because uh, okra is not easy to find yeah <laughs> yeah i've I've made a few batches with okra I, I think i have to go to some of the asian markets in in winnipeg though to to get the uh to get the fresh okra but it uh it did. It did deliver. I'll give you. I'll give it that much. So yeah, that's cool. cool. Yeah, I was, I'm glad you brought that up, Tristan, because I was going to talk table fed next. Um, the one thing that I guess I will mention is that when it comes to cooking waterfowl in general, there's like this stigma that you have to cook it like a chicken. Like you can't. Like you can't have any pink in it, etc. Like it's got to be really well done. But do you find yourself cooking your a lot of your ducks and stuff medium rare? Um, yeah, medium, especially if you're grilling them, medium rare at the most. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you like to pair it with when you're barbecuing them that way? Um, I like to make, I, I like to have rice with mine. Oh, yeah. 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 Some of the best birds I've ever eaten was, uh, I was up in Churchill with work and did a spring snow goose hunt. And uh, some of those snow geese, they had a nice orange fat, like you're saying, and we cut them up with uh, fat on the breast still and, Man, that was some of the best meat I've ever eaten, I think. Um, and ha I also got a, a guy. I went over to a guy's place um, that was a treaty up there and had a, ma a couple mallards that he roasted with the fat on it and everything. My God, was that ever good? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, table fare, it's kind of crazy because a lot of people don't like the duck meat or goose meat, etc., cetera, um, and throw it into sausage and pepperettes. Do you have, like, a favorite – processed way of doing it like jerky or anything or uh yeah with our geese i like to make jerky pepperette sausage but yeah that with the big honkers but you know we keep the leg and thighs out of them and we'll we'll 
we cook them in a slow roast recipe where you do it with onions and and beef beef broth and seasonings and you know you slow roast it for three or four hours in the oven and and that stuff comes out like you know pot roast beef it's super good you you can have people that have never tried it before and they love it yeah well i know uh goose legs and thighs you don't smoke them hey tristan well you like can a, but a, I, I, I think you need to be a little sharper with your delivery than i was i yeah i tried the low and slow on the smoker with mine um but i didn't add any i needed to add some some moisture in there and i failed on that front and uh i think they yeah. came out like little jerky mallets that's the way i would describe them it'd be like eating this microphone yeah <laughs> i think you'd have better luck with that microphone actually there's some give to it yeah i got one more i guess uh just the more i got kind of a wrap-up question coming up but do you have any more any uh questions? no i uh I got one wrap up once I'll let you shoot first. Sure. So like if I was um, a customer of yours, and I know we've kind of touched on a lot of, a lot of what to expect, but like what would a day at Dirty Lake look like for, for a customer, like start to finish kind of thing and what to expect, I guess, like can you go over yeah. maybe that? Yeah. So, you know, a typical day uh, hunting with us at Dirty Lake, you'd, We'd, you know, have our plan the night before, set a pickup time, you know, so we're going to leave, leave town at say 5 a.m. to go for, for our morning hunt. And, and we'll ex- explain to the guys once we get there, you know, this is going to be our setup and we're looking to shoot ducks or shoot geese, or maybe it's a combo and, and, uh, we'll hunt till whatever time when the birds stop flying and see how we do and. And then after the hunt, we'll all go have breakfast and, and then, uh, everyone else can, we clean the birds and everyone has time to have a rest after, after the work's done. And then, you know, if we're, we're going to be hunting again that afternoon, we'll have a plan. We'll have pre-scouted obviously the field for the evening or, or maybe they've got lucky and limited right out and, you know, they get the evening off. So lots of times the guys will jump in and go scouting with us and, get to tour and see the countryside and, and uh, get our game plan for the evening hunt. And same thing, you get out there and have your hunt and back to back to town after to have supper and clean birds. Nice. And what's, what's generally that duration? Like, is that a three day, five day? Like what do, what do uh, hunters normally, normally do there? Um, a lot of hunts are three days. We do have a few groups that do four day hunts and oh, yeah. one, once in a while, if it's a, uh, you know, a group that's kind of a once in a lifetime hunt, they might come for five. So, you know, then you're, you got your days, you're allowed uh, so many birds per day and a three day possession limit. So then we're looking at, you know, having a big feast and cooking a bunch of birds to keep them within their limits and possession and that. Right. Huh. Right on. All right. And then on my end, I was wondering like if we, we could do this one of two ways, but like if you had a time machine and was going to go back to tell young Barry a thing or two, or like if you're going to tell like an up and coming guide, like a, a, a few points of sage advice, what would you tell that guide or, or young Barry about the, the fast paced world of outfitting? I would go back and tell myself you had no idea it was this much work. <laughs> <laughs> it... And 
but but there is nothing more rewarding than you know taking clients out and 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 having a great hunt and great experience meeting super people and just you know take it all in and enjoy it it's like we said it's not always about shooting full limits of birds every day it's the whole experience is is what's worth the the process we've we've made a lot of super friends lifetime friends out of the out of uh guiding and outfitting and yeah we there's guys that you know quit hunting and they can't hunt anymore and they're still we still talk to them all the time yeah that's cool and i think that's like everything that you just said it's kind of like the whole outdoors world it's always like a lifelong memory or a lifelong tradition or whatever it may be and i'm super glad that we got you on um kind of before your busy season and, and right in the middle of, of waterfall season here, because uh, you said a lot of things tonight that I relate to, you know, like getting people outside, getting new, like first time hunters, like that's really rewarding to you. Um, like with Panoramic, like we started this group to get people outside. Like we had friends asking us to take them fishing and hunting, goose hunting. Um, so part of the podcast is for, you know, education and stuff. And not only that to get, like I said, a million times on people outside. So, Thank you very much for uh, coming on to the podcast. Those are kind of my final words, but uh, yeah, I appreciate appreciate it. And I wish you all the luck this fall. And hopefully I don't find you in one of my fields before I get there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I won't promise you that, Sheldon. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on, Barry. Good luck this fall. Hopefully the guys shoot straight and uh, don't blame it on the duck calling. And um also, yeah, maybe we could uh, link up for a fish or something one of these times and, uh, you know, maybe do something that's not during the busy season of waterfowling, but it was great getting to know you and, uh, yeah, wish you luck. Well, thanks. Yeah, good luck with uh, the rest of your season of podcasts and all your guys' uh, hunting and fishing trips you'll have planned. Awesome. We, we need it, so appreciate that. All right, thank you. Sheldon, you're great at outros, so why don't you why don't you take this one over? I'll do the outro, but uh, huge thanks to Barry for coming on the podcast. Uh, I've known Barry for quite a while um, through work and, and and seeing him, you know, scouting around our area as well as uh, Minnedosa. So um, yeah, huge thanks to Barry and all all the luck to him and his group there at Thirty Lake. Um, it was good having him on. I love having the local guys on or local people, whoever that may be. Uh, you get a little bit of more knowledge, and I love uh, I love throwing like the softball questions to him, so we can so he can explain. You know, for the people that might not waterfall hunt, you might want a few tips or tricks. Um, have you ever hunted out of those A-frame frame blinds, though? Tristan? No, but everything I hear about them makes me want an A-frame blind. I know, like the camaraderie part of it. Even yeah, just, like, yeah, that's yeah. the biggest thing. Yeah, like yeah. refilling the coffee and checking in with the the crew. Who wants? Yeah. Who wants a little top up? I'm. I don't know if I. Well, I don't know if you know, but I think I said on the podcast I'm going on a spring goose hunt in Saskatchewan in April. So I'm. I'm looking forward to it. I hope that it's a A-frame setup. I don't know what their setups are for sure, but um, that'd be super cool for that. Have you ever seen those guys that dig the big pits and then they have like they're like cooking? Oh egg, yeah, yeah. Eggs and bacon, and there's recliners down there. Those have those are happening at those duck leases though. I think like Barry was yeah. talking about like those. That's where that's happening. Or it's like like very private land. You're not. Could you imagine doing that to like your neighbor Bob? 
like who just let you on the field for the afternoon and he comes back and there's like a there's a bunker <laughs> underneath his cornfield or something like that well don't laugh i think i might have said this on the podcast a few episodes ago but i'm pretty sure there's uh at plumas there's that exact thing and they have these like big lids they put back over them and then they just cover them dirt and they plant right over top of them and then as soon as the field's harvested they remove these lids and there's these big pits I don't know what they're like, like if they're super nice inside or whatever, but yeah. But yeah, we want to kind of make this outro short and sweet, but before we kind of let everyone go, there's a few things I want to mention about uh, our website, www.panoramicoutdoors.com. You can go there and check everything out, what's going on in our lives kind of thing. Um, There's some recipes, some blog posts, but the other thing that we have is our store. And In our store, we're up to date on most of our, to all our stock. So if you're looking for an old signature hoodie, we got those back in stock, signature hats we got back in stock, and we just released the, is it the Pharaoh, Panoramic Pharaoh gear? I think that's what we're going with. That, that was a consensus, so. it sounded like. Yeah, so it's a, it's a, if you haven't seen it, check out our Instagram or Facebook, it's been on there. It's basically a P with an arrowhead going through it. It's kind of a cool design, it's pretty simple and fresh, and uh, we hope everyone likes that. So go to our website, uh, www.panoramicoutdoors.com, and pick up anything that you might want to wear this fall or this winter. And if you can't support us by buying merch or, or anything like that, a good way to support us is to give us a five-star rating or comment on the podcast platform. Let us know how we're doing. I mean, even sending us a DM and checking in with us is always great to hear from everyone that listens. So if you could do any of that, that'd be great. Other than that, I don't know how much more for the listeners. Tristan, anything else before we take off? Well, I just wanted to say, you know, Sheldon kind of made fun of me today for my 90 days of fall posts, but... Uh, whoa, 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 I did not. I yeah. like that. Okay, okay. Just making I, sure. I'm actually, I seen your, your post on Instagram, and I was like, I, I was like, man, that is freaking amazing. Like, why didn't you post that on Panoramic? But I, I really have a good appreciation for what you, the thought process, A, that you put into it, and like the respect and a couple other words have probably come to mind that you have about the fall. It's more than just killing or it's more than, it's more than what more, I think more people, most yeah. people put thought into, you know, the little bit of reverence there. That's for sure. Uh, it, it's my, uh, it's my favorite time of year for sure. Hands down. No, no questions asked. I look forward to it all year and I'm sure that's the case for a lot of our listeners as well. So what I was, where I was going with all this was like, if you're, if you're hidden fall, Right now, just like we are, I, I want to wish you the best fall out there and uh, all the best of luck in the woods, the waters. It's the, To me, it's the best time of year. So I, I hope you have a great time, get to connect with family and friends and just have an absolute blast and soak it all in like we kind of talked about earlier. Right, Sheldon? That's right, man. Take it. Do it while you can. And as always, thanks for listening, folks. And uh, we'll see you on the next one. <laughs>